the arm around the shoulder when you don't know, the encouraging word, the applause when somebody sings for the first time. These things make a significant difference. And Parkway has, still is, and will always be a church that values its youth. Amen? That's right. But I also think we had some really fun memories when I was here. I can think of the very first time I ever led worship. Uh, many of you remember Chris Gray. He used to do this huge, elaborate setup over here on this side. And we got this huge rug from Navajo Rug Company. It was way too big. He used to come out of a hotel. And it was really gross and sticky, but we used it anyways. And he put a stage over there. And one day, he's going to leave, and he says, hey, you're leading worship. And I thought, mm, I just learned how to play guitar last week. And he said, no, it's your time to lead worship. And so I only knew one song, uh, and it was Wind of the Spirit. You guys remember that song at all? Whoa, Wind of the Spirit. You know that one? If you don't know it, that's okay. But I just, I'm going to sing you like 10 bars. No, I'm not going to do that. But I remember getting there and, and singing along, and I'm like, okay, the, the, the chorus is going, the melody's going okay, and the chorus gets really, really high. And I knew about two seconds before I launched into it, I'm not getting there. Uh, I'm not going to be able to reach the high note. And so what I did was kept playing the notes and then mouthed the words. Uh, but funny enough, no one was singing along. So it was just me mouthing the words. And then finally somebody really nice in the back, one of the girls was like, woo, you know, she did the whole thing. So I was like, okay, good. I can also remember a certain crowd breaker. Uh, this crowd breaker is really controversial, uh, but we had this thing where you were going to take shots of water, three shots of water, as fast as you could. Really simple. Except we pulled the old switcheroo, and the last one was liquid sweet and low. Looked just like water. Yeah, you, yeah, you should be. The, see, we should have thought about your reaction. We didn't think about these things before we started. Anyways, I can tell you whose idea it was, but I don't want to get them in trouble. Uh, but anyways, we got to the point, we thought it was super funny. People were taking this, this shot of, of liquid sweet and low and immediately started running for the bathrooms, throwing up. We're on the phone with poison control. Uh, it was really great. But in those days, I was playing bass guitar uh, and always the high bass, right? Only because the strap, that's, just, that's where it went. So I had to play the high bass. And I remember I'm getting ready to get going and, and Chris is about to lead worship and he's like, what's going on? <laughs> And I look at him right before he's about to pray and start. I'm like, we're in serious trouble. <laughs> and I remember afterwards he said, uh, hey, before I'm going to lead worship, let's not, like, not do that again. Let's, like, not discourage me and tell me things are really, really bad. Anyways, everyone was fine, but some good memories. Uh, I can also remember uh, being on staff. And at that time we had these things. They were called opportunity to serve cards. I'm not sure if anybody remembers this. Uh, but think of it in my mind, I'm a youth, and youth used to have like mailboxes, and if you saw something in the church that was an opportunity to serve, you could like write in the card, and I think it was meant to be like a really good thing. Well, I remember one time being called over on a Saturday night to clean up after a uh, women's ministry quilting event, <laughs> and it was like really, it was a big, it was a big mess, and they just asked, hey, can youth can come, can you come do that? And I said, yeah, it'd be no problem. And so I decided at the end of that, it took me like three hours to clean up, I'm going to write them an opportunity to serve card. And I used it like, have you ever, any of you ever seen Jimmy Fallon's like uh, thank you cards? Anybody ever seen that? And they're always like pretty, pretty sarcastic. Uh, pretty much the same thing here. I wrote it and I was like, thank you women's ministry for giving me the opportunity of taking three hours of my Saturday night to clean up your quilting. Um, it really is teaching me a lot about service. Thanks, and I put it in the women's ministry box. Um, I heard a little bit about that, <laughs> and I should have, but hey, 
I was young. I didn't know any better. Uh, and I can also remember, this is the last memory that I'll go down. Uh, we produced a skit called Fairfield Ninjas. It's very popular. It was really good. But we didn't have any costumes for it. And so we thought, hey, let's go to where Laura Granado keeps the shepherd's outfits. This would be a really good idea. And so we put on all the shepherd outfits and we filmed this huge skit. And then grass stains and sweat and boy sweat and high school sweat. We just put them back on the coat hangers and we thought it'd be fine. Uh, well, come around Christmas, <laughs> we heard a little bit about that. Anyways, this is youth ministry stuff, right? But I have some other memories. And I have a memory on this stage on a youth Sunday. I have a, me- I have a memory of David Herrera as clear as a bell, giving his testimony and him saying, I used to have an identity as this, but now my identity is in Christ alone. High school student, youth Sunday, giving his testimony. I can also remember Sean Arvin giving his testimony at High Life in the monotone way that only he can do it. Where he said, I now have freedom from who I was. And I have freedom in Christ. Moreover, that's what I remember. I I have funny memories, sure. But what I remember more than anything is a ministry where kids who had no business coming to the Lord came time and time and time again. No Christian family, no background, abusive situations, situations that we don't want to think about. What happened? They came, they heard, and they believed the gospel. That's what happens in youth ministry. That's what happens in any ministry. And we ought not be surprised because this is what Jesus does. This is the example that we have in Scripture. And the story we're going to go go through today is a woman who has no business hearing at all. And why does she hear? Because of Jesus' good pleasure. If you're in this room and you ever heard the gospel, it's because it pleased Jesus. None of us have any business getting to hear the treasures of Christ, and yet we do. It's an amazing thing. So as I was thinking about this message, I've been uh, really in the woman in the well now for six or seven months. I can't get past it. It's it's a story that has just grounded basically everything that's been happening in my life for six, seven months. And one of the things that's really been happening in my life is I need to see who Jesus is. Okay? And I think I really want to draw attention to who Jesus is in the message today. That's my aim. My aim is to show you who Jesus is. Not what Jesus does, but who Jesus is. Okay? That might not seem totally different, but it is. I mean, many of you know Rochelle and I, tomorrow we'll go to the doctor. We're going to find out news one way or another about Ruby. And in those situations, we need to be convinced about who Jesus is before we ever hear any news about what he's going to do. So I'm convinced that the way we change, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we're we're changed uh, degree by degree by beholding the glory of the Lord. We change by seeing. So if you're in this room today, and as as we go through the text, I want you to see who Jesus is. I don't want to get... Uh, This is not a model of evangelism. This isn't uh, us thinking about ourselves and how to reach the lost. I want you today in the story to read, woman, you 
I, everyone we come into contact with, we're the woman. We're the woman. And I want to, I want to talk about what we see uh, about Jesus and who he is. Okay? So, let's move to, the, let's get to the text. John chapter 4. You can open up your Bibles. And my aim today is to give you four things that Jesus is. The first is that Jesus is purposeful. The second is that Jesus is gracious. The third, Jesus is greater. And the fourth, Jesus is Messiah, Savior, Christ. Okay, that's what we're going to go in the text. Now, that's a lot of verses, and I acknowledge that. And if I had uh, my way about it, we would probably break this up in about four messages. But I'm with you this week, and I'm also with you on the 28th. So we're only getting to 26, and we're going to talk about really the thirst. We're going to talk about the water. We're going to talk about Jesus. And then we're going to apply it the next time I'm with you on the 28th. We're going to talk about what happens when your thirst is quenched. What does life look like when your thirst is quenched? Okay? But Jesus is purposeful. And I want to draw your attention before we actually get into the text to a couple observations. I want to observe some things about the woman. Then I want to observe some things about Jesus and draw that down into purposefulness. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is uh, in verse 27 that the woman's a woman. Okay, that might not sound like a surprise. It's the woman at the well. Your Bible probably clued you in on that. But one thing that I think is really important as an observation is uh, in 27, when his, when his disciples came back from getting food, they, they did something when they saw that he was talking to a woman, and it was they marveled. They marveled that he was talking to a woman. See, in our culture, a man talking to a woman is not that big of a deal. In the time of Jesus, you just didn't do that. There was a clear division in class. Man, woman, you do not break that. And so much so that his disciples marvel at this. He's been talking to her while we're gone. Uh, That's a woman. This is different than what we know to be our cultural norm. It's important that we pick that up. The second observation that I want to make is that the woman is a Samaritan. Okay? So now she's got two things going against her. She's a woman, first of all. Now, I don't believe that. This is that time. Please, if you hear this on the recording, women are great. Just, just so you know that. But the woman is also a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were uh, a people group that were despised by the Jews. Okay, we know that up and up above uh, in verse... Mm, I've got it in here somewhere. But anyways, it's the parentheses where it says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So we know that the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get along, and they tried to, to avoid that at all costs, okay? So she's a Samaritan. She's an unclean people group according to the Jews. They didn't want to have anything to do with them, and she's also a woman, okay? Those are the two observations. A third observation is that the woman was five times married, okay? It says that in verse 18, and, and Jesus was the one who told her this, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So she didn't reveal that Jesus said that. It's important because it means that Jesus knew that about her. Okay, so before he ever goes through Samaria, this is a knowledge she has about her. But five times married, one time shacking up with somebody who's not her husband. That's who she is. Woman, 
already a strike culturally. Samaritan, two strikes. Married five times, I don't know, seven strikes. Living with a man who's not her husband, you get the picture. Now, the fourth one, and I want to spend a little time thinking about this, it's in verse 6, when it says that she came to draw water, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay, that's verse 6. It was about the sixth hour. That's about noon. So if you live in a dry, arid place, and it's around noon, chances are it's very hot. If you have chores to do, if you have things that, that need to happen in the morning and you need water, wouldn't it make sense to go in the morning? And in fact, culturally, that was appropriate. All the women got together with their buckets, their jars, and everything else, and they would go communally to the well to draw. And so the final observation is she goes at noon, and she's alone. So what does that tell us? She's a social outcast. No one wants to have a thing to do with her. And you can imagine, you can almost see her in her house peeking through the window. Is anybody around? When, when are they going to leave? What's the route that I can go so no one can see me? Because when they see me, my shame is on display. Here in my house, I can hide it. Here in my house, I can look at this guy who's not my husband, and he can bring me maybe some comfort, maybe some warmth, maybe take away some of the shame that I have. That's not really what happens. We know it's probably just adding and adding. And so this person is spending all of their time and all of their energy, and they're orienting their life around their shame. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's five times married, one time shacking up, social outcast. Okay? Now, that's us. That's us too. We have no business having Jesus pay us a visit. But that's exactly what happens. And it's not by accident. Okay? It's not by accident. Because there, here's four observations about Jesus from the text. The first one is found in verse 4, and I, I, find, I find this phenomenal, where it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus doesn't have to do anything. He is not constrained by a, a, a geography. And for, if you look at the map, he didn't have to go straight north. Matter of fact, remember when I said that Jews didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans? It was culturally the practice that you went around near the coast. Why am I going into the heart of Samaria? There's nothing good in there. Those people are racially outcast. They believe different things. They're heretical. We're going to have nothing to do with them. Our righteousness, because we're, we're Jews, we're going to go around. And so in Jesus' day, that would have been part of it. But Jesus here, it says, he had to pass through Samaria. I, that, when I read that, it's just, that has been something that's rocked me for a while. The only reason he had to go there is because he had to have a conversation with a woman who's a Samaritan, who's a five-time married, one-time shacking up social outcast. He has an appointment with her. Well, how do we know that? The second thing we find out in the second observation about what Jesus does, verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, 
when's the last time 12 men have ever had to go buy food for 13 men and go together? Really, when does that happen? It's like Jesus is saying, hey, um, all you 12, I'm super hungry, so go ahead and just go all 12 of you together so you don't get lost and go buy this food. It didn't need to happen. There's an intentionality behind this. See, Jesus aims to have a conversation with this woman. He had to go there. And he sends his disciples away so that he can have this meeting with her. I think that says something. I think it says something about the intentionality of Jesus. So when I say Jesus is purposeful, I want you to also think about uh, some words that might be synonymous. Jesus is sovereign. Because when Jesus decides to work in any way in your life, who are we to dictate how he works? We might see one or two or three of the purposes he has for us, but he's tying that times a, a thousand people. You're in this room today. You interacted with other people today. You're hearing this word today. This is not an accident. This is evidence of his sovereignty. You are meant to hear the words of the gospel today. If you were brought here, you didn't choose that. You were brought here. You came here. There's a purposefulness. There's a sovereignty in everything that God does. I want us to see that. Because if we're the woman, and we're going to hear that there's a gift that she's offered, we're offered it too. See, one of the interesting things about the book of John It's written afterwards. There's three Gospels already written, and John comes sometime later. And John tells us what he wrote it for. Uh, In in verse, um, uh, it's it's later on. I've got it here. Promise. I don't have it right here, but I promise it's in the Scripture. This is, Dan's going to tell me I should use notes next time. Man, okay, no problem. So it says in John, these things have written so that you might believe. Okay, And if you know the reference, you can holler it at me. <laughs> but I have it here somewhere. But that's what John, he, he writes it in, in his, his gospel. I'm writing all these things so that you might believe, so that you might have faith that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's the Christ. That's super important. Because when we read John, that means we read John and we read ourselves in the story. I think we're supposed to do that. The third observation from the text about Jesus comes in in verse 1, chapter 4. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Okay, so Jesus has a growing movement. His movement is growing. He's actually taking more disciples on than John. The the Pharisees are starting to take notice. So we know he's he's got a growing movement. Now, Let's say you only had three years to get your message out, that you were the savior of the world, which we know from reading the scripture that that's about as long as, as Jesus' formal ministry lasted. Three years. You've got a, a very fixed amount of time to get your message out, and your movement is growing. And right in the middle of your movement growing, you have to go to Samaria, and you have to have an encounter with a woman who you have no business dealing with, I find that fascinating. If I was the CEO of a company, 
and I was given three years to get the message out. I'm going to go wherever the most people are. I'm going to talk to groups of thousands upon thousands, and I'm going to try to get my message out. That's not what Jesus does. In the midst of his growing movement, he goes after one person. He goes after one person. And that's exactly what he does in our lives. One person. At the end of the day, it comes down to you and him. He has an appointment. He aims to keep it. The fourth, Jesus is looking for something. It says in, in starting in verse 23, the hour is coming, it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So the Father's on a mission, but the hour is coming and has now come. So I think, I think it's safe to assume that the mission that the Father has is through Jesus. And so the Father is seeking worshipers. And so the, the final thing I want to say about Jesus being purposeful is he has an appointment with somebody who culturally has no business having an appointment with. He sets the stage perfectly. And the goal is you're going to worship in spirit and truth. See, the text says that she asks a question later on. Where should we worship? Which temple's right? Well, he's going to answer that question and he's going to say, It's not about a temple. It's me. It's me. I'm who you worship. I'm the, the hour, the hour has come. Anytime we read the hour in the book of John, it's always a reference to Jesus' death. Always. It always relates to the hour when we are going to be united through Christ's death with God. So God is, is looking for people who will worship in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus is doing. That's his purpose. He has a very select purpose. And it's for her. He aims to have her. And he'll have her. Because you'll notice she's, she tries to wriggle out multiple times. She tries to get out of the situation. She tries to throw Jesus off the scent. Time and time again, he brings her back, brings her back, brings her back. Because he aims to have her. So Jesus is purposeful. The second thing that Jesus is, is gracious. And I want to point that out because once he's set the stage, like we talked about, once he had an appointment, he's sitting on the edge of the well. The woman comes to draw and he asks her a question. And he says, give me a drink. Verse 7. Woman came from Samaria, came to draw the water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now I want, to, I want you to think through the implications of this. This is a woman who knows her shame full well, orients her life around her shame, knows that to a Jew she would have been unacceptable, knows that she shouldn't be talking to him because she's a woman, has this secret about her, a five-time marriage in the past. So you can imagine when she, when she has that offer, give me drink, what does that sound like to her? What would that, what would that feel like? So here's this Jewish man offering me a drink. or No, not offering me a drink, sorry. He wants to drink from my bucket. He wants to share a drink with me. 
I mean, when I think about what that says about who Jesus is in our lives, he comes to share in what we're dealing with. Like, Jesus, you would want to drink from my bucket? This bucket? The one that's all crusty? The one that I've been using over and over again? The one that's not fit for a king? You want that? You want to drink from that? So one of the first things that we can draw is Jesus is gracious. He meets us right where we are. Right in the midst of our shame, right in the midst of what we're doing, he comes in and he says, I am not ashamed to have a drink with you. I'll have a drink with you. But see, she doesn't get it. She doesn't know who it is. We know who Jesus is. She didn't know. But just by Jesus saying that, it says a couple things to us in this room today. Number one, it doesn't matter what gender you are. It does not matter what culture you are. It does not matter what affiliation you have. It does not matter if you're a Baptist. It doesn't matter any of those. It doesn't, doesn't matter. All things that are, are there are secondary because Christ is offering something. Does that make sense? I, I, hope, that, I hope that you're getting that today. Just, I want to say that strong, more strongly, but I, we'll just stick with that. Just by him being there and saying, I want to drink from that bucket. The second way we know that Jesus is gracious is because he offers something to her. Okay? It says in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So, so Jesus is saying, hey, not only am I willing to drink from your bucket, but if you would ask me, I'm going to give you living water. So Jesus is gracious to meet her not only where she's at, to sit with her, to speak with her, to talk with her, to be in relationship with her. But the goal with that is, I want to give you something better. I want to give you living water. And so imagine from her standpoint, uh, who is this guy? Who is this guy who's saying, drink from my bucket, now I'm going to give you living water. Um, it sounds really good. I kind of do want living water. But he obviously doesn't know me. Because if he knew me, he would never offer me this gift. See, Verse 10 says, if you knew the gift of God. So he's speaking with some level of authority. I have a gift for, for you from God. It's living water. I want to give it to you. And how does she respond? Well, you don't have a bucket. Think about that for a second. How many times in our lives do we look at something, we look at the offer of salvation, we look at drinking, and we look at the situation and said, well, God, sorry, well, Jesus doesn't have a bucket. He can't give me living water because I can't see how he can draw that water. He doesn't have a bucket. It it's parallels what Nicodemus says the, the previous chapter, where when Jesus is talking about a new life and you've got to be born again, he goes, where's the womb? <laughs> I want new life, but I don't see a womb big enough to, 
to put me in. This is us, guys. This is, we're supposed to read ourselves in, our, in this story. This is who we are. This is what we do. When we get an offer like this, living water, we think about all the reasons why we shouldn't get the offer. And the main reason that she can't see it is because she's dead. Spiritually dead. I want to make that really clear. If she would have had eyes to see who Jesus was, she would have leapt at that offer. She would have been like, living water, i got to take it. She doesn't do that. She's not able to do that. So I want to talk about one more gracious thing. I realize we're going a little long. I'm going I'm to blow through a couple of the things and bring it home for you. So be patient with me and thank you very much for that. Uh, the other way that he's gracious is he's gracious in revealing her sin. So we're going to find out in the verse that when he, he goes in to talk about the water and how great it is and how, for, how, how much more superior it is than the water of Jacob, she goes, yeah, I want some of that water. And then he says, bring, me your, bring your husband here. And isn't that interesting? It's interesting that at this point in the story, when she finally says, yeah, I want to drink some of that water, he says, well, go get your husband. And I want to say to you, I think the reason he does that is because he knows what her true thirst is. See, how many people have become Christians because there's an offer for living water, and the water is like, okay, I want the things of Jesus. I want what Jesus does. I want the fringe things. Yeah, I want the, I want the money that if I pray hard enough, I'll get. And I want the health. If I pray hard enough, I'm going to get that too. Right? There's churches that have thousands upon thousands of people who hear that message every week and they're saying hallelujah. But that's not her true thirst. Her true thirst wasn't getting rid of her shame. Her true thirst is that she's a sinner. So Jesus is going to touch on that. And he's going to say, oh, you do want a drink? Well, let me expose your true thirst. Go give me your husband. Go give me your husband. And that changes a lot of different things. And we're going to find that through the story, he continues to offer that. That living water offer never goes away. It's always on the table. And the other thing is, as soon as they touch on the five times married thing, he never brings it back up. In the offer of the living water, he never says, go stop what you're doing and then drink deeply. Drink first. Drink first. You ever, you ever uh, talk to somebody about Jesus and they seem to have a face that's fairly blank? And you just want to scream? Like, don't, do you see what we're talking about here? We're talking about Jesus and you're thinking about peanut butter and jelly. This is, what, this is where she's at. She's blank. She's talking to Jesus and he's gracious with her. He points out what she needs. You're going to find that it goes a couple different times. Again, she tries to wrestle out of this. She tries to wrestle out of that. He's gracious with her every time. Jesus is greater. She asks a question. Are you greater than our father Jacob in verse 12? Because he says, I've got water for you. She says, well, are you greater than Jacob? He gave us the well. This new water, this newfangled water you're offering, is it greater? It's greater. And I want to submit to you five ways that it's greater. I'm going to do a brief. In verse 10, it's greater because it's a gift of God. It says... If you knew the gift of God, so the water's a gift. 
It's living water. It also says that in verse 10. If you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. The third thing about the water, verse 14, whatever drinks of the water I'll give him will never be thirsty again. It's the third thing. It fully quenches thirst. The fourth is that it becomes a spring in us, a well in us. Let's think about that for a second. The offer is everything you've been going to, every small thirst you've ever had, every time you go to food, every time you go to internet, every time you go to anything, substitute anything that you think is going to bring you some relief, it goes away. Because in us, when we drink deeply of Christ, that water is a gift of God. It's living. It fully satisfies, fully slates our thirst and becomes a well. We have a reservoir that wells up within us now, a new type of water. And the fifth thing that the water is, and the reason we know it's greater is it says that this well leads to eternal life. I mean, don't miss that offer. Don't miss the five times greater water. And, and in this in the story, we know the water, if it's living, this is Jesus. This is himself. He's the water. So when she asks the question, are you greater than Jacob? He does it in a gracious way, but he goes, you bet I am. You bet I'm greater than Jacob. I'm five times greater. I'm going to tell you those five times. She asks a couple other questions later on. Are, which temple is the best? And he tells her, I'm better than all those temples. Just Jesus is beyond greater in the story. But I want to close with this. It's in verse 26. When everything goes through the story and he's gone, they've weaved and bobbed. And he's answered all her questions. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And that's in response to her question of when Messiah comes. He's going to let us know all things. You know, we've been debating things back and forth, but when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all things. And that's finally when he finally reveals who he is. He says, I'm Messiah. I'm Messiah. Messiah, Jesus, Christ, the one for us who on the cross declares, I thirst. Think about that for a second. Jesus offers living water that will never end, that fully slates thirst. But when he goes to die on the cross, he declares, I thirst. What do we make of that? Well, what we make of that is Jesus had an appointment to keep. He was looking for something. People who were going to worship in spirit and truth. And the only way you do that is through a reconciled life through him to God. So as he's bringing this salvation to us through the cross, we switch thirsts. Ours fully satisfied, fully delighting in all that Jesus is for us and him on that cross dying thirsty. That's the difference. That's the difference. He takes on our thirst so that we might be satisfied. 
And if you're here today and you're hearing this, please remember, we're the woman. This offer is our offer. If there is something in your heart that you have not yet been able to drink deeply, I pray that you will. I pray that God would meet you in this text and you would realize that he's offering something and he can offer it because he owns it now. He is the well. He is the water. Drink deeply of Jesus. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. God, we come into this place with so many different desires in our heart, so many different circumstances in our life, and yet we all have the same offer. You're offering us water. God, will you open our eyes so that we might see the greatness of Jesus? Will you help us, Lord, as we go through our lives to drink deeply of Jesus. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen.